Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. Today's episode of the podcast features part two of my Flipping Florida series with Dr. Fergie Reed Jr. Dr. Reed and I talk about the strategy for flipping the state and its 29 electoral college votes blue, based on the work spearheaded by him and his father in Virginia helping to flip that state in 2019. He explains the simple and intuitive concept, which is to register more voters and run candidates in every race, and why this strategy has been historically underutilized by Democrats. We talk about how Florida is ripe for the picking with its many races and red districts uncontested by Democrats, and how Texas, Georgia, and North Carolina are not far behind. And he speaks about the civil rights work of his father, Dr. Fergie Reed Sr., who ultimately became the first African-American member of the Virginia State Legislature since Reconstruction. There are links in the podcast notes if you want to learn more about Dr. Reed Sr.'s organization, 90for90.org, or to donate to Florida Democrats in these forgotten but important races. And now, here's my interview with Dr. Fergie Reed Jr. Hello, Dr. Reed, and welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Hi, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me on. So let's just start right off with talking about your strategy. You are a man with a plan, and that plan is right now to flip Florida blue. It worked in Virginia. You're hoping it will work in Florida. What exactly is this strategy? Very simply, it's register a bunch of voters and run a bunch of candidates. In Virginia, we started 90for90.org, honoring my dad's 90th birthday. And we asked everybody who believed in voting and wanted to push back against Jim Crow to work together and try to register 90 new voters per precinct per year in Virginia. This is starting in 2015. And if you multiply out the number of precincts in Virginia times that stated goal of 90 per precinct, it's about a quarter million voters. So roughly a quarter million new voters for the state every year. And people in Virginia have taken the project seriously and have done that. And since we started the project in Virginia, There are about 1.5 million new voters registered and voting in Virginia. So that's the voter part of it. That's really working well. Hillary won the state overwhelmingly, five or six points, wasn't even close. But as far as the state legislature goes and running a bunch of candidates, when we started in 2015, Virginia runs their state legislative races in odd-numbered years. The Virginia House was a super minority of Democrats. So 33 Democrats and 67 Republicans. That means the Democrats had 67 opportunities to challenge, but they did not take all those opportunities. In fact, they only challenged 23 of those 67 and picked up one. So they went one for 23. That's not good, but at least they got the 34 seats, which is getting them out of the super minority. So the next cycle in 2017, I made sure that a bunch more candidates ran. Now there were 66 challenger opportunities, and the Virginia Democrats ran 54 of those 66 challenger opportunities. And they picked up 15 seats. And then the next cycle, they had 51 challenger opportunities, and they ran 43 of those 51. 
and they picked up another six. So 22 seats in three cycles, 1.5 million new voters in five years, and the results speak for themselves. As that relates to Florida, this is existential kind of election year, and Florida is a linchpin kind of a state. If Trump doesn't get those 29 electoral college votes, he can't be president. So the strategy is to win the state by competing throughout the state and the state legislative. That's great. Let's get to Florida in a minute. I want to sort of explore what happened in Virginia a little bit more since that's been a big success story now that Virginia has a Democratic majority in its state legislature and is really, I would say, more than trending purple. I mean, it's purple. So how did you come up with this strategy? Obviously, it's pretty intuitive, but why weren't people doing this before? There are a lot of different reasons. It is very simple, and it's not my strategy, dad's strategy, and before his strategy. It's, as you said, it's just basic and intuitive. You can't win if you don't play. If you play basketball, you field five guys on the court. If you play football, you put 11 people on the field and on and on with the different sports analogies. You don't go out and play with a man down or a woman down or two people down. That's just giving the other team an advantage. But in politics, that has become the common wisdom not to compete where you think you can't win. And we're calling BS on that. And I think that answers your question, but it's not rocket science. Compete everywhere grow the party everywhere, year after year. Winnability of a district is irrelevant. Always run a candidate. Always respect the voters of the district enough to give them the option to vote for your party's candidate. Did you ever get any pushback in Virginia for doing that? If people weren't doing it, or were there some entrenched interests in not doing it? There are entrenched interests in not doing it. And there's a subtle kind of a Stockholm syndrome that is developed amongst the people that never have an option. And they don't want to go against the ruling party because that's where the power is. And they might think there'd be repercussions for contesting the seat. But again, we push back on that. Does that make sense about the Stockholm Syndrome thing? You need me to explain that a little bit more? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. Understanding what Stockholm Syndrome is, the hostage takes on the mindset of the hostage taker. In some of these areas that are overwhelmingly controlled by one party, the other party just doesn't see it in their interest to even compete because they are beholden to the powerful party. And they just say, hey, I'm going to get my goodies from them. I don't want to make them mad because if I run a candidate here, I'll just make the other party mad and that would be bad for me. It was a long process. This is a strategy that's not for people who need immediate gratification. You said you started in 2015. And dad started in 1955. Right. I want to talk about your dad. Let's get to him in one minute. You went from a super minority to a majority in three cycles, correct? 15, 17, and 19. Because Virginia runs in odd-numbered years. They're state breakers. Obviously, some seats flipped enough to obviously make all the difference. For seats that didn't flip, or districts that didn't flip, what, if any, ways were there that running candidates in those districts made a difference? I mean, in other words, if they didn't win their races, how did it help to lose less badly? 
I love to tell this story last cycle in 2019, and I'll go back in the previous cycles after that. This is the wonderful, wonderful story from last cycle. There was a woman last cycle who ran in an overwhelmingly Republican state Senate district. And she understood that basically she was just going to get her name on the ballot and not do too much else because she really wasn't all that interested in being a candidate. But she was a good Democrat and she did want to give the Republicans some kind of a contest. So she got her name on the ballot. And she really didn't do too much campaigning at all. I think she raised $300. For a state Senate race, that's not a lot of money. But she spent the 300 and her Republican opponent, who was the incumbent, had $300,000. And he spent the $300,000. And your point is that that $300,000 that he spent on himself probably didn't go to the other state Senate races that Democrats wanted to flip to take the majority. There were several that Democrats were interested in flipping. They did flip two. They needed two to take the majority. They got the two. And if that fellow's $300,000 had found its way into those two races, maybe they don't flip. And any given night, there were three or four other races that could have flipped. That fellow's $300,000 might have inhibited those from flipping. So a thousand to one return on investment for this lady. And she didn't take a whole lot of time out of her life to do this, but it was invaluable what she did. It was heroic. And she deserves a lot of credit. That's great. So now you live in California. What is your connection to Virginia? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. I lived there until the early 70s when I left to go to uh, high school in Massachusetts. My dad was born there in 1925 and returned back there in 1955 after he finished his medical training and his service in Korea. So we're a Virginia family, and his family is a Virginia family. So your dad, you've mentioned a few times, I know his story, but I want listeners to hear his story. He's Dr. Fergie Reed Sr., and you talked a little about the 90 for 90 campaign on his 90th birthday, but tell me about his history. Why this campaign? What did he do? He's historic in the state of Virginia for being the first black person elected to the Virginia legislature since 1890, post-Civil War Reconstruction, when a lot of the southern states opened up opportunity for, for black folks. Because kind of the Union Army was overseeing things, and then things went back to the way they had been before, mostly. And that period is known as Jim Crow. So dad was born in the Jim Crow South, capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, in 1925. And when he got back from Korea in 1955, he was kind of upset about what he saw and started a project to make sure that people could register to vote and vote. You had to pay poll taxes if you were black. You had to pass a literacy test if you were black. And there was some physical intimidation about getting out and voting. And so he helped people get past all that. For 12 years, starting in 1955, he ran first in 1965 and narrowly lost. And then he ran again in 67 and won and broke this color barrier that had been in existence for 77 years. That opened the doors for other people to be elected. One of those people that walked through that open door with 22 years later, become the first elected black governor in the history of the United States. That fellow's name is Doug Wilder. 
And it's incredibly illogical that Virginia would be the first state to elect a black governor in the history of the United States, but it happened in Virginia in 1989. And then the second black governor was elected in Massachusetts in 2006, Val Patrick. Then Barack Obama was elected two years later, 2008. So it's a living history. Dad turned 90 in 2015, and we started this project to honor his 90th birthday and to tell everybody that it's okay to honor people while they're still living. It's okay to leverage up on their achievements and not let the simple things go by the wayside. Because it's very simple. Always register voters all year long. Don't wait until the end of the cycle to be registering voters. And start recruiting candidates early so that you have a full slate of candidates running regardless of winnability. How did you decide that Florida should be your next target? It's been on the razor's edge for 10 years. So if you go back to 2010, there was a governor's race, Alex Sink versus Rick Scott. 60,000 vote margins statewide. Then four years later, Charlie Crist ran against Rick Scott. 60,000 vote margins statewide. Two years later, Hillary Clinton, 2016 now, running against Donald Trump, about 110 to 120,000 votes statewide. And then last cycle, 2018, Andrew Gillum, 30,000 vote margin, and Bill Nelson, 10,000 vote margin. Incredible. All these are ridiculously slim in a state like Florida, where millions and millions and millions of votes get cast. Florida's the low-hanging fruit. Texas is going to come around at some point, and Georgia is going to come around at some point, and North Carolina is going to come around, having been around already. I think North Carolina went for Obama at least once. But Florida is just so ripe for the picking, and it just takes a little bit of effort your strategy is to run Democratic candidates in every single state legislature race in Florida. I know from having interviewed the people at 140 Florida Blue Project who you have been working with. Janelle Christensen and Margie Stein. Yes, Janelle and Margie. Those are the folk in Florida. And there's several other folk, Peter Hoffman in New York and Bob Lynch in Florida and Matt Rogers in Virginia. Everybody's been very helpful, and it's a team effort. No one person can get it done. But just explain to people how, by running Democratic candidates in all 140 Florida state legislative races, could somehow— 141 cycle. Oh, okay, 141. How does that end up delivering the Electoral College votes to Biden? If you look at Florida, the— Political honchos in Florida call Florida five different states. It's just so big and so spread out. The different groups and issue sets for the different parts of the state. Miami is completely different than the panhandle. And so if you're looking at it politically, you got to consider these areas almost separate and distinct. So the reason that I think my contention that Democrats have been losing Florida is that they just don't play hard enough in the Republican areas. And the panhandle is one of those Republican areas. To some extent, Jacksonville, Duval County, had been one of those Republican areas, but it's getting more Democratic now. And in Southwest Florida, where Janelle and Margie live, in the areas down there, Fort Myers and Naples and Cape Coral, those are heavily Republican areas. Also, 
there's like a vast interior to Florida above and below the I-4 corridor. Above, there's an area called the Villages, very Republican. And below, there's the vast Everglades, very rural. Democrats tend not to compete in these areas. They compete in Miami. They compete in Tampa and Orlando, Daytona Beach, Palm Beach, Broward, to some degree in Jacksonville and certainly in Tallahassee. But in the other areas, they just had been kind of disinterested. In politics, you got to win big where you can win big, but you also got to lose small where you're going to lose. You can't give the other team a big win in their strong areas. But some of the political consultants, they think it's not worth their time and effort and money to compete in areas that they know are unlikely to be winner areas. This is why I think Florida is on the razor's edge and is so ripe for the picking. And to answer your question, we got to compete in those Republican areas. And that means running candidates everywhere because Democrats live there. They're just not used to having anybody to vote for. And this is the thing that I was talking about, Stockholm syndrome. You get inured to the fact that, hey, this is just going to be the way it is. And if I want to vote, I got to vote for a Republican because that's all there is out here. Well, no, that's not all there is. We're running Democrats everywhere. If you're a Democrat in one of these areas, you're going to have an option to vote for a Democrat. You're going to be able to meet them and talk to them and feel good about them. And that's probably going to bring out extra votes. You're much more likely to come out to vote for somebody you've met and talked to than somebody you have no connection to, even if it is a big presidential election. That's why I think these marginal votes are going to come out for Joe Biden from these Republican areas. But Florida is very good about getting out their vote in their strong area. Florida Democrats are talking about. They're very good about getting out their vote in Miami and Tampa and Orlando and Tallahassee. They just need to be better about getting out their vote in Pensacola and Jacksonville and the villagers. By running Democratic candidates in these state races, you're potentially at least building up some kind of local organizational structure for the Democrats where they are knocking, well, virtually knocking on doors this year or having events, meeting the local constituency. The phrase in politics is called building the bench. And the more you run people, the more people get interested, the more they want to run for stuff. So it's not just state legislative races and congressional races. There's other stuff to run for. There's school board races and county commission races, soil and water. In Florida, there's they got mosquito abatement board. There's stuff to run for. The joke is to run for dog catcher, but no, in some places they elect the dog catcher and they elect county judges and there's all kinds of stuff to run for. And these races help build the party in their area. And it's not always about winning. So like in Virginia, there's benefits to losing less badly, to building your infrastructure. Call it losing by less. Losing by less, yep. And so you look at the totality of the state and you win by more in your strong areas in Virginia, that's Fairfax County, Northern Virginia area, Richmond, Tidewater for Democrats. Win by more there, lose by less if you're a Democrat in Southwest Virginia, where the knife point goes out where it meets Kentucky and Tennessee. That's Republican area, but you gotta run there. Democrats live there. It's nice to have a Democrat for Democrats to vote for there. 
And it's nice to have a real discussion about the issues. This is not just a partisan context. There's real dichotomy between the issue sets. And it's nice for people to hear both sides of an issue and to have a choice. That brings up voters. Those votes that come from the Republican areas, they count just the same as the votes that come from the heavily Democratic areas. And that's the nature of a statewide election. You total up the votes statewide. So it sounds like what you're saying is there's a potential this year that, yes, you don't win a lot of these races where you're challenging the Republican for the first time in sometimes decades in some of these districts. But by bringing out more Democratic voters for the statewide count for the presidential election, that could be what makes a difference. So this year, it's possible that Florida, you might not win a majority in the state Senate. But it's possible. You might. Exactly. Do that little bit of math. So in Florida, they got 120 state house seats and they've got 20 Senate seats up in any given cycle. There's 40 total, but they don't run them all at the same time in Florida. So this cycle, because there's a special election for Senate, they got 21 Senate seats. So 21 Senate races and 120 House races. So there are 10 Democrats amongst the 21 state senators that are running this cycle. They're all pretty much, let's just call them state for the purpose of this argument. 11 challenger races. And you got 11 shots to win four. They got to win four to take the majority. In the House, 120 total races. And there are 73 Republicans challenging every one of them. They got to flip 14. So you got 73 challenger races, 73 chances to flip 14. That's pretty good math. It's definitely doable. Yeah. And so whatever anybody thinks about, well, this district and that district, that's not flippable. This is not flippable. That might be true in any other given year, but nobody's ever seen an election with Trump as president. This is the first time this is ever going to happen. Nobody's ever seen an election in Florida where Florida is the COVID capital of the world. Nobody's ever seen an election in Florida where both Trump and DeSantis are persona non grata for their handling of the COVID crisis, as well as all the other drama that's going on. A lot of unprecedented stuff going on this year. As Don Rumsfeld would say, a lot of unknown unknowns. But here's one thing we know. There's a Democrat contesting every acre of Florida this cycle. It's never happened in the history of Florida that anybody I can find can tell me about. I checked with the senior political writer in Florida, and he said he'd never seen it before. So I'm going to take his word for it. Wow, that's really amazing. Now, Florida, like you said, it is a really complex state. You say there's basically five states in one. It's also known as basically a snake pit or maybe I should say alligator swamp of voter suppression. Most recently, there was Amendment 4, returning the right to vote to millions of formerly incarcerated people in Florida that was approved by the voters in 2018. Since that was approved, there's all kinds of setbacks that have happened where the state started requiring these people to pay all their court fees before they could vote, which basically looked and smelled like a poll tax. That's been challenged legally, yet because of delay tactics in the courts and all kinds of stuff going on, it looks like that these former felons will still not be able to vote this year. 
How do you think that would have impacted the election this year? And are there any other obstacles you're encountering just dealing with this state? That's the beauty of this project being about dad. Because he's 95 now. And he grew up in Jim Crow, capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. So he's seen all of these games. And his strategy when he started doing this was to understand the other team is going to cheat and suppress as hard as they can possibly cheat and suppress because that's an integral part of their winning strategy. So instead of trying to fight that, certainly you want to fight that as much as possible. But the way to overcome that is to overwhelm the polls with voters so that no matter how hard they cheat and suppress, they can't do enough cheating and suppressing to mitigate the way you're overwhelming the polls with new voters. We got the people. The 17-year-olds turn 18 every day, and people move to Florida every day. You just got to get them registered. You got to get them out to the polls. So our strategy for combating that is just register more voters, register voters all year long, get them excited to come out to the polls, help them understand that their vote is power. If you are destitute and have no money, on election day, your vote counts the same as a Koch brothers vote or Sheldon Adelson vote. So that's your power day is election day. So use your power, get out and vote and overwhelm the polls with people that want to use their vote as their voice. These laws about felon disenfranchisement, this Jim Crow back from the turn of the last century. And so you understand that going in, not discouraged by that. And you fight back against it and you change those laws because you elected people who you don't have to lobby to change those laws. So are you working with any voter registration groups or are you guys doing, I mean, I know you've got your hands full just running in all these, running candidates in all these races, but are there any groups in Florida that you're working with? Well, certainly every group, and this is part of the 90 for 90 request of everybody, is to take it upon yourself to be the change agent, whether you're a county committee, whether you're a candidate, activist, one of these groups, whether it's a union, or whether the group is solely interested in voter registration, or whether they're interested in women's rights, or whatever the issue set of the group is, to make one of your main goals to be registering the people who are following you and are interested in you. So that makes the phrase Many hands make for short work. That's what our model is, basically. And it really worked in Virginia. I'm telling you, it really worked. All of a sudden, voter registration started skyrocketing after 2015. You look at 2016. All these numbers are on our website. And I follow it in Virginia month by month and try to get people to stay focused on it. So speaking of how we all are part of the change. Do you have any suggestions? What can we do if we don't live in Florida? If you don't live in Florida, you can still donate to candidates. You can go on a bunch of different websites that are the predictor websites, and you'll find the races that everybody's focused on flipping, the favored races. These races are going to get a lot of money. But one thing that you can do is give a little bit of money to the races that are running in these heavily Republican areas, because just a small amount of resources in those races 
is going to cause the Republicans to have to spend a very large amount of resources on their race. And that's going to cause the redistribution again. An easy way for people to do that is to donate to 140 Florida Blue. So I will put that in the notes for the podcast. Absolutely. And Janelle and Margie and the team, we recruited 36 of these 141 candidates. And we're trying to help maybe 51 or 52 of the candidates that are not going to get the lion's share of the attention. Now, there are 73 challenge races in the House, and there are 11 challenger races in the Senate. So that's 84 challenge races total. Of the 84 challenge races, there's probably going to be 60 that don't get the lion's share of the attention. And if you want to donate to some of those 60, those donations are going to go a long way. In Florida, the donation limit is $1,000. That's a lot of money, but if anybody wants to give $10 or $5 to any of these candidates, it adds up when it comes from all over the country. Dr. Fergie Reid, this has been such an interesting conversation, so enlightening, so exciting what you're doing in Florida. I think it's really important for people to know why it's important to run in races that look like they're not going to happen for Democrats. So... I'm really grateful that you came and spoke to me today and filled me in on what I can do to make a difference. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on and let's talk again. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs>